Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. As the war continues between Israel and Hamas and the death toll climbs, we are seeing pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian demonstrations and gatherings across the country. Yesterday in the loop, thousands rallied in support of Palestinian people. And Jewish people concerned about the loss of civilian life in Gaza gathered in Washington, D.C. this week to demand a ceasefire. I spoke with two Chicagoans who support the call for a ceasefire. Rabbi Michael Davis is a member of the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council. And Aaron Niederman is an organizer with the group If Not Now. I started by asking Aaron why they traveled from Chicago to D.C. to be part of these protests. Well, it was both a hard decision in terms of dropping everything to come out there and a very easy one at the same time. Um, I think that I can speak for uh, many um, Jewish people I know, and of course all the people of If Not Now, um, all, all the people organizing with If Not Now, to say that um, I'm tired to see, I'm tired of seeing the grief um, and mourning that I've uh, experienced. You know, um, seeing all the loss of life in Israel be leveraged for more violence to the Palestinians in Gaza, and um, we've seen that military solutions over the past uh, 15 years, especially, do not work. And the only way, in uh, our opinion, in my opinion especially, is to uh, call for a, a ceasefire immediately. And so I know that D.C. is the best place to do so. And um, I was uh, excited to, to meet others, to come together and to use our, our Jewish voices to call for it. So I've seen some video clips, but for those who haven't and weren't there, can you describe the scene in the Capitol Rotunda for us? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, there was over 300 uh, Jews and allies, all donning shirts that say, uh, not in our name. And on the back, Jews say, ceasefire now. And um, in the center of, of this group, we had a, um, a rabbinical council, so a group of rabbis and other Jewish clergy leading us in song and prayer and chants, um, demanding an end to this escalation, um, an end to all this unnecessary or, and especially uh, collective punishment. Um, and yeah, we were there for about four hours, and there were over uh, 300 arrests, I believe. Um, and uh, it was a very powerful experience and one where we were demanding for our voice as Jews and allies to be heard. Um, and that we, um, yeah, that we, we refused to have this happen, uh, especially in our name, in the name of Jewish safety, for there to be more and more violence. Rabbi, let's bring you in here. Why are you calling for a ceasefire? We're supporting the, the ceasefire now because we don't believe that the violence will add anything. We're grieving for the loss of Israeli life uh, on October 7th. Um, and uh, I have family in Israel and uh, they're hosting families who were evacuated from the areas around Gaza. Um, so uh, we're feeling this very deeply. At the same time, uh, my friends on the Palestinian side are terrified. Um, and um, nothing good can come from continuing the violence. So we're calling on President Biden to stop sending armaments to enable this continued genocide in Gaza um, and to call for a ceasefire now. 
we know there's a wide variety of, of views within the Jewish community about the correct response to the Hamas attack on October 7th. You have folks that are saying, well, Hamas has to face severe consequences. And how will Hamas learn their lesson? What do you say to that? There are 2.3 million people in Gaza. Most of them are children. Most of them are refugees from the 1948 Nakba in Israel-Palestine. They are not guilty. Um, And there's a a very vigorous uh, debate in Israel about whether Hamas can be removed and whether it's desirable for it to be removed. But none of this addresses the atrocities, uh, the war crimes, one million people displaced, buildings flattened, over a thousand children killed, thousands of people. It's actually um, a misnomer to call this a war. Almost all, practically all the Israeli um, fatalities were on that first day or first two days, the 1,300. Since then, the Israelis have been safe, traumatized, terrified, anxious, but safe under the American Iron Dome. That's not the case in Gaza. The onslaught is going on as we speak. So what do you think is the path forward here? At some point, the violence will end. It always does. Uh, And then negotiations will begin. We're asking for the negotiations to begin now. Hamas has said it seized the uh, hostages and the captives in order to trade them for its own prisoners held in Israeli jails, including children and women. Why not test that? Israel could declare a 24-hour ceasefire and see whether Hamas is for real or not. If they trade hostages, this will be a path out of this hell, beginning of building trust and a, a way forward. If not, Israel still wins on the PR line. Why won't Israel call for a ceasefire now uh, and start it right away? Yeah, according to reporting from Al Jazeera, at least 1,400 Israelis died right, in that on, attack. And that October 7th and the days after that, right? And we still don't even know uh, the identities of many of them, be- and we may never know because of the, uh, the horrific fires and the atrocities that were carried out by Hamas and their allies on October 7th. Aaron, as the rabbi mentioned, there has been a staggering loss of civilian life over the past 12 days uh, in Israel, in Gaza, even here in Illinois, right? We saw over the weekend that conservative messaging about this war led a suburban landlord to attack his Muslim tenants and and kill, as a result, a a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy. How are you processing all the loss that just keeps coming, Aaron? Well, it's definitely not easy. It's a lot to take in, and um, especially when so much of it is being weaponized um, to call for more violence, it's even harder. I would say that uh, personally, a great thing for me has been to be in community of other uh, Jews and allies, of course, um, recognizing that experiencing this grief doesn't mean that we have to push for more violence. Um, and I, like the, this past Thursday, there was a, a Mourners of Kaddish event in Chicago uh, where we all came together and said a prayer, this uh, very traditional Jewish prayer, mourning the loss of all of this life and still holding that and seeing through our grief um, to recognize that we don't have to experience more loss um, of Palestinian life, especially moving forward. You're Israeli, Rabbi. Yes. As you, you learned more about the Hamas attack on civilians and as Israel's attacks on Gaza began, I mean, take us back. What were your thoughts then? And, and I'm curious if anything surprised you. Right. Well, it was shocking to wake up on Saturday morning and hear the news. Um, at some point, Gaza was going to erupt at some point, but but not like this, and not with such horrific losses. Um, 
What's what's particularly concerning uh, are, are the way things are unraveling at the edges while our focus is placed on Gaza. How an Israeli hospital uh, denied treatment to a Palestinian terrorist when there are Israeli hostages needing care in Gaza at the very least. Um, how um, a member of the Knesset, who's in the only Jewish Arab list, was kicked out for 45 days for statements he made. So these chilling effects on free speech, um, the way Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, and on the West Bank are, are, are terrified right now for what's going on with the settlers. There's a lot that's going on away from this uh, appropriate focus on Gaza that things are unraveling and continuing to. So that's why I'm getting concerned and seeing things shift in unprecedented ways mm. in the wrong direction. You did your three years of um, compulsory service in the Israeli Defense Forces, I yeah. hear. So what was it that led you to become part of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is a Jewish anti-Zionist organization? So I, I, it was a gradual process. I left Israel 25 years ago uh, because of what was going on then, the processes that are continuing, sadly, to this day. And it was actually being in America that allowed me to get some distance from um my the way I was trained to think in Israel to be to, in Israel to be Jewish is to be not Palestinian and vice versa. Those are legal entities entered into the registration of uh, the population registry. So uh, it's a binary opposition, and there are legal benefits that accrue to being Jewish and the opposite for not. So it's very hard to think your way out of it, and some Israelis are, and kudos to them. But for me, it took coming to the United States, getting some distance, being in a true democracy, connecting with, with Palestinians here. I never had a Palestinian friend in Israel, even though they were my neighbors. It took me coming here, having that space to think, to mature, to grow away from that, to get to this. Mm. Aaron, I'm curious, what's been your experience with expressing your views? Um, well, it has been a varied one, absolutely, and definitely a painful one at that at times. How so? um, I, I think I didn't really realize how uh, much many of my friends might disagree with some of my thoughts around the uh, conditions in Israel-Palestine, whether uh, the word apartheid might uh, come to mind there and how fiercely that disagreement was. Um, I can say at least have a very vivid memory of talking with some people uh, from college that uh, in a, a group chat exclusively for Jews and um, finding myself to be the lone voice in uh, maybe some somewhat trivial matters of the time, uh, you know, charges of anti-Semitism uh, uh, towards Ilhan Omar or something like that, and realizing how um, much they disagreed with me and also maybe resented me for that disagreement. Um, yeah. it's, it wasn't easy to take in in those moments and to feel so alienated and isolated. Um, but since then, um, I've been really lucky to meet more and more people that can both hold love for um, the idea of Israel as a safe place, place for Jews, but also not be blinded by that love um, to, to realize that it, it needs to, the, the conditions there need to change so that it can be a place for uh, equality and justice for all. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Israel's bombardment and siege on Gaza is meant to pressure Hamas into surrendering the hundreds of Israelis held hostage. But it's putting millions of Gazan civilians on the brink of running out of food and water, and it's leaving them with no safe place to escape the bombing. Now, some Jews in the U.S. are protesting, and they're calling for a ceasefire. Aaron Niederman is an organizer with If Not Now and just returned from a protest in Washington, D.C., and Michael Davis is a member of the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council. So, Rabbi, Israel has an extremely powerful, technologically advanced army. 
There's no doubt about that, right? The 40-mile barrier as well between Israel and Gaza or the Gaza Strip, uh, it's a, a mix of a 20-foot fence, radar systems, and, and sensors underground that was supposed to keep Israelis safe by keeping Palestinians out. What more can you tell us about how this so-called iron wall functions and, and that view of, of safety that rests on just keeping a whole group of people out? Well, I'd have to defer to security experts. I'm, I'm not an expert. And I think these questions are, are, will be asked and people are asking them. Uh, but I do think that there was perhaps a sense that as Israel pursued uh, peace treaties, you know, the Abraham Accords and so on, uh, and tried to pretend the Palestinian problem had gone away, that they expected the Palestinians to buy into that narrative. And it was a false sense of security. It was always going to erupt, not like this, not in such a tragic way. But Gaza erupts every few years, uh, because how could it not? People living under the boots of occupation will rise up. Mm. And, and and as far as the function of the Iron Wall, I, I mean also just em- emotionally, just in daily life, how it functions, not necessarily the security aspect. Well, you know, I, I have friends on the Palestinian side. I'm a, I'm a teach Arabic. I'm a student of Arabic. And I speak regularly with my teacher on the West Bank. And she gives me these snippets of how the, what it actually is like to live under occupation, the military occupation that's been in place for 55 years with no sign and in sight. To get from her workplace to her home, she has to pass through an Israeli military checkpoint. And mm-hmm. she tells me that she has to remind herself as she's walking through that if my cell phone goes off, don't reach in my pocket or my bag to pull it out because that could be a death sentence in that moment. And we, we spoke about how uh, on occupation versus a democracy, every cop is the final authority of life and death. There is no high authority to appeal to. And we're talking about 18, 19-year-old young men and women, the military service that I did, who have this tremendous power under the occupation. And that's how she experiences just one moment in every day of her life. Mm. Aaron, you know, we are seeing also dehumanizing language being used by members of the Israeli government, right? Language that's then repeated in the media, uh, things like the Israeli defense minister saying that they're fighting, quote, human animals. What effect do you think language has? I think language is very powerful, um, especially when it's being used to justify continued bombings, uh, the withholding of electricity and water to a group of people when they're no longer being referred to as the many children that they are, especially in Gaza. Um, and all of the, of course, innocent people, um, it has a, a large bearing on the way that we, we receive this information, both in the United States and, of course, I imagine, as the Israeli public does. We're going to be talking more about the language being used in this war on Monday's show. You had some thoughts, Rabbi? Well, it's about what we can say and what we can't say. Uh, for the Palestinians have been calling for nonviolent resistance for years with boycott, divestment and sanctions. Most people, I think, will agree that Palestinians have legitimate grievances, whether they are the occupation, the discrepancy in the legal system in Israel, and so on. If we deny them the right to nonviolent protest, what options does that leave them? And I'm, I'm sad to say that the state of Illinois has led the way in the United States of outlawing and criminalizing this expression of our free speech and acting in solidarity uh, with the Palestinians. Um, in 2015, the Senate uh, voted 49 to 0 and the uh, Illinois House 102 to 0 
uh, to, to start the path that other states have followed and is now going on on a federal level. Uh, if we can't speak up legally in the United States, if we can't show our solidarity in nonviolent ways, what option are we giving the Palestinians? To your point, there's a conflation that seems to happen, right? Zionism and Israel become linked to all Jews and Judaism as a whole religion. And then Palestinian civilians get conflated with Hamas. What do you make of that? Well, being Jewish doesn't mean being Israeli. Being Jewish doesn't mean uh, being Zionist. I mean, I, I wrote my thesis in rabbinical school on the anti-Zionist uh, uh, response uh, by all streams of Judaism when Zionism appeared in the, in the 19th century. You know, in fact, it's important to state there was an article by the Israeli historian Ilan Pape that came out this week pointing to the Christian roots of this colonial uh, um, takeover of, of Palestine um, that came before Jewish Zionism, that empowered Jewish Zionism and continues to be a, numerically a much larger force in the United States. President Biden has sent warships and munitions to enable the onslaught on Gaza. He's not Jewish. He's Christian, and he's a true believer, and he speaks for tens of millions of others. So I, I just want to sort of correct that this is not Israel is not an American Jewish problem. It's an American problem, and it's an American Christian problem too. Aaron, what's next? Will there be more protests? Um, I can definitely say there will be more protests. What we're seeing is that there is a continuation of the organizing that we saw in D.C. happening all over the country, and... Um, it will continue in Chicago as well in the form of rallies and uh, marches and also um, likely some direct actions addressing the role that Illinois Congress people play in this. We'll have to leave it there for now. That's Aaron Niederman, an organizer with If Not Now, and Michael Davis, a member of the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council. Now, for more coverage on the Israel-Hamas war, head over to wbez.org slash reset. Now, we heard from the rabbi at Chabad of Evanston, where two Evanston residents are presumed to still be hostages of Hamas. Earlier, we checked in with a panel of interfaith leaders, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. They had just returned from Jerusalem just as the Hamas attack on Israel began. We've also covered on this show how misinformation about the conflict is spreading on social media. And earlier on the program, we heard from a Chicago-based nonprofit with doctors on the ground in Gaza. This Reset Conversation was produced and edited by Linnea Dominic. We drop new episodes of the pod every day from Monday to Saturday. And you can also check out our full catalog of Reset interviews at wbez.org slash reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk again soon. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.